The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Squawkbox with Karen Cho, Jeff Cutmore, myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your Friday morning headlines. So yet another make or break moment for Brexit. Talks apparently taking a turn for the worse. Uh, with reports suggesting new EU demands have soured the mood. Now, apparently, the French President Emmanuel Macron has made a late intervention that has dashed the hopes of an imminent deal. Oil prices rally after OPEC and its allies reach an upward compromise, agreeing to relax production cuts in January as the demand outlook improves. They are not hindering demand as they were in the first wave. Uh, the jury is still out. And because of that, we want to be cautious. A bipartisan stimulus bill gathers pace in the United States with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell resuming talks as lawmakers race to release fresh aid and avoid a government shutdown. Shares in Pfizer fall after the U.S. drugmaker slashes its COVID-19 vaccine production target in half, reportedly due to supply chain problems. Brexit talks have reportedly stalled once again as negotiations head into a make-or-break weekend. An agreement hangs in the balance amid demands over fishing rights, state aid and a level playing field. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson is reportedly alarmed by a late intervention from French President Emmanuel Macron yesterday evening. The French leader is taking a hardline approach on some of the key sticking points, according to the FT. Well, let's get out to Steve for more from Westminster. Steve, we've been waiting on edge all week for some form of a breakthrough. But instead of receiving that, we seem to be having more disappointing news about whether this breakthrough is actually going to be coming. Yeah, good morning, Karen. Good morning, Jim. I don't know, Karen. I have to say, I, I'm trying to get past the bluster and, and counter bluster, the briefing and counter briefing. Because if you wake up this morning, uh, and I did wake up thinking, is, and again, I went to bed at a reasonable hour last night and there was no deal then, but I quite easily could have woken up this morning and they're there. They're, there's going to be a big announcement today and Ursula von der Leyen uh, and the UK Prime Minister are going to be meeting. But I didn't. I woke up with the opposite scenario. Uh, and I can't help thinking that progress has been made this week. Although the last 24 hours, there's no doubt about it, have been pretty bad for talks as well. Now, if you read the British press, which have basically been briefed by the UK government, that is a fact. That isn't just me making this up as well. We know the likes of Laura Kunzberg at the BBC. We know the Times uh, and other institutions as well have heard it from the UK government sources that the French came in with a late set of demands over level playing field, as you mentioned, uh, over subsidies, over fisheries as well, uh, and actually were making new unreasonable demands. That's what's been briefed by the British government to the British press and perhaps the international press today. And yet... And yet, Michel Barnier, for his part, is turning around and, and indeed the EU sources are turning around and saying, what? We didn't do anything late and new and different as well. So that's on one level. And then on another level, you've got Simon Coveney coming out during our show yesterday, the Irish foreign minister, and saying, look, for goodness sake, don't leave us caught in the crossfire uh, over something as inconsequential uh, compared with the bigger picture as fish. And of course, he's thinking not only uh, about the economic impact of Brexit, but of course, the countries most affected are Great Britain with Northern Ireland uh, and indeed the Republic of Ireland. And that border is absolutely key. Any of us who lived through those troubles as well knows that we don't want 
want a resumption of all those issues as well. So they've got an eye to that as well. There was another interesting thing happened yesterday. And this was Jean Castex, who is the Prime Minister of France. Now he was at, uh, and Matt Taylor loved my pronunciation, so I'll do it again for you, Boulogne-sur-Mer, which is one of the key fishing ports in France, like one of the, the big fishing hubs of France. And he turned around to the fishing community there and said, look, Things are going to change. We have to have some form of compromise as well. But we as a French government have got your back industry, which I thought was very interesting, offering maybe some form of subsidy perhaps to the uh, French fishing industry. But I'll part of that idea. But the point is, at a prime ministerial level talking to French fishermen, he was talking of compromise. And yet at the same time, we're hearing from the press reports that the French president, Monsieur Macron, is making all these last minute demands as well and being hardcore. Now, he may well be doing that. He may well be trying to force the British into a corner. There is a school of thought that the Europeans and some hardcore nations in Europe, including France, want to walk away from the talks if the British are being too unreasonable, have a short, sharp shock for the British economy and, and gridlock in Kent and the ports and what have you, uh, and then force the British back to the table on European terms. That is one school of thought. Whether that is mainstream or not, I have my doubts as well, because I think everybody, including, let's face it, the person we haven't even mentioned yet, which is Frau Merkel, I think they want a deal. They want the trillion dollars, trillion dollars of trade that goes back and forth between the EU and UK. They want that to be as seamless as possible as well. And over something, and we've said the numbers many, many times, 0.1 of a percent of the British economy uh, is pretty much dominated by the fishing industry. It's such a tiny amount as well. And again, we've made this other point, and you made it earlier in the week, Karen, as well, about the Brixham fishermen who are like terrified uh, of Britain getting all the fish under the wrong kind of terms because we won't be able to sell them, because that's who eat them, to the French and to others as well in Europe. So there are all kinds of nuances here on the French side, on the EU side, on the fisheries side, on the Irish side as well. So there's like, enormous amounts at stake. There's no doubt about it. It's been a horrible t- last 20 hours nothing really moved forward in that 24 hours but i think the week as a whole my understanding is a lot did move forward and the other issue you didn't mention because it doesn't appear to have become such an issue is governance karen that was the third of the three prongs subsidies and level playing field fisheries which are both very thorny still it seems but also governance of a post deal regime as well and who's going to keep a check on it as well well that one seems to not be such a contentious issue so there is progress being made whether it's going to take a leader-to-leader talks as well, that remains to be seen. But we understand, just very briefly, Barnier is going back to brief VDL today, which is uh, von der Leyen, the EC president, and then he'll be back again as well. I hope he's getting air miles for all this. <laughs> Steve, I read a comprehensive run-through. I want to circle back to one of your first points about the bluster through some of the, the press avenues. And, you know, we've covered enough M&A deals to know that this is how it plays out in business circles if you try to cut a deal. One side will place an article with one newspaper and another side will place their view with another newspaper trying to communicate through the press and manage expectations and perhaps that explains why we're not seeing sterling come off some of the highs that it's traded to about three month high it climbed to yesterday the 134.51 i just want to get to the time frame from here because clearly we had this deadline on the 31st of december not just counting down to a brand new year we're counting down to uh, the, the lack of an agreement how late can this one run even if europe does like these 11th hour deals effectively what's the final date before we can get a deal is that the final day is literally in the next couple of weeks, maybe even next week or so, Karen, because there's so much that can happen before that. But everyone's going to go off to the hills, aren't they? Let's be honest about it. I'm looking forward to my holiday as well. Mike, my cameraman, he says he's off soon as well, even if he has to do a few OBs in the meantime as well. You're going to head to the hills as well. And that's going to happen all of all these politicians. And there won't be the legislatures in place, the parliaments in place, the commission in place, the European parliament in place to rubber stamp and go through all of this kind of stuff as well. So, yeah, I mean, there is a very hard deadline and it does mean that there's 
is no extension to the transition talks. This is what the British want as well. I'll tell you what's another date for your diary. Well, I'll give you two, actually. Monday and Wednesday next week. Because if the British weren't being as, uh, I don't know, kind of a, a, abrasive enough as it is, they're actually going ahead with this internal markets bill again, back in the Commons. Jacob Rees-Mogg has put it back in the agenda for Monday as well. Then you've got a taxation bill on Wednesday. And both of those are pretty much ripping up some of the, uh, the issues in Article 4 of the Withdrawal Agreement, which is a treaty, believe it or not. It's a treaty which the British have said, yeah, we're kind of breaking it a little bit. Breaking it is breaking it, as far as I can see. But they're breaking... Article 4 with a uh, another reading of the, um, the internal markets bill on Monday uh, and then on the taxation bill on Wednesday as well, which will basically challenge the question of the primacy uh, of the EU rules uh, governing the Northern Ireland stroke mainland England and uh, Britain trade as well. So a lot of issues there, Geoffrey. Yeah, so I think you guys have covered most of the basics here. I mean, the one thing that did encourage me uh, was the fact that we seem to have made a substantial move beyond just talking about those three key points and starting to discuss the issue of how the agreement would ultimately be policed, what kind of monitoring would take place, and then ultimately uh, how would there be adjustments to the arrangements uh, around policing, which did encourage me to think that at least some substantial progress was being made. But I, I just wanted to move it on perhaps for our audience and just try to ask the question at this stage, what is actually in the price as far as Sterling and the FTSE are concerned? Because let's face it, the negotiations began uh, about March. The uh, COVID story kicked off about March. We now are talking about a vaccine and uh, vaccinations beginning next week and uh, a number of serums that are ready to go as far as uh, COVID is concerned. But we're still here discussing Brexit and the opacity about progress that's been made at this stage. So to my mind, as you look at the pound sterling still sitting around this 133 level, I think you still get the sense that the market has half a view to these talks failing. And there would be some upside uh, if we ultimately got a deal here. But at the moment, I think the, the sense is that the market has become very bored with the whole story but essentially, we're not seeing a great deal of move higher in either the um, uh, the pound sterling and where we are seeing the FTSE higher. That seems to be COVID related rather than anything else. And it does remain one of the major laggards in terms of uh, major global markets at the moment. So to my mind, there is uh, the potential here for a pleasant surprise and some upside into year end if we get over the line on a deal. I don't know what your read is on it, but um, if if the if the cable rate is the thermometer, it seems that the temperatures are probably about as low on a deal for the market as they are where you are in Westminster. Jeff, I'm going to uh, dis disagree with you actually, uh, just uh, in, a, in a very friendly way on a Friday. I don't want any big rows today, um, but 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 I think the pound has rallied uh, on the back of hopes of a deal, but it's also rallied very aggressively on the fact that the, the dollar is just being wiped out in the markets as well. You know, a one twenty one handle on the uh, on the euro dollar as well. So we're, we're trading one thirty four fifty four, I think there or thereabouts on the pound sterling as well, and we're trading sixty five hundred, give or take the change on the FTSE as well. Now at our worst of the year, of course, the FTSE was a lot lower for a whole host of reasons as well. 
But in the last couple of weeks or so, it was knocking on the door of around about 6,000 before we had this big late October rally uh, into November uh, and now where we are in early December. And I think the pound would be nearer to the 128, 130 level where it has been when people have been more pessimistic uh, about prospects of a deal. But I'm, I'm painfully aware as well that, as you quite rightly say, there are many other things going on here apart from Brexit. And I think a lot of the banks, including Goldman's in the last week and others, are looking beyond perhaps a little bit of just Brexit and saying, well, look, the pound could get up to 143 if we get a Brexit deal as well. It's what some of the analysts have been saying. Uh, and the FTSE could have maybe another run at 6,800 to, uh, to, to 7,000 as well. I beg about 6,800. Yeah, 6,800 to 7,000 as well. So they, I think both those asset classes have had a decent rally. And for instance, when I woke up this morning, I thought I would see the FTSE looking lower after having uh, eked out a tiny, I think, 26-point rally. And yet I see, I believe, and perhaps Karen can correct me on this one because I haven't got the figure in front of me. I think the FTSE is called up around about another 20 points. And I was surprised about that despite what global markets are doing, because, of course, we have this contention about talks here in London. Absolutely. I mean, I think the point you make about the dollar actually is the key one here, because we've what we've now got the euro at a two and a half year peak against the dollar, which won't please uh, Brussels. Uh, but ultimately, it tells you more a story about how everything else is doing a little bit better against the greenback because of the greenback rather than any other issues. But again, I thought it was interesting the point you made about the FTSE there, given that uh, on uh, CNBC Pro, and I commend it to everybody, Goldman Sachs talking about buying everything that did badly in 2020 for the first quarter of 2021. And let's face it, the FTSE hasn't been a phenomenal performer. Yeah, I just want to make one more point, and I'm just going to just check something before I say it. Here we go, yeah. I, I, I look at all the newspapers when I go up in the morning, as indeed do you and Karen, all the wires and what have you. And I, and I, I inevitably end up looking at the FT. And I, I had to scroll for the Brexit story. Now, the FT have got had their very strong view on, or have done previously, Lionel Barber, the previous editor as well, had their strong view on Brexit. I think it's pretty become apparent. But the top story there is Brussels warns Poland and Hungary they cannot stop EU recovery fund. And then it talks about EU identity crisis, then there's an Uber story, then there's a terrorist story. And I had to scroll down about 10 stories before I got to the Brexit one. Now, that's very interesting. And I suppose that tells you where the world, and perhaps if the FT is looking at a broader perspective for the EU, compared with just us as Brits who are looking at a, at a British view in many ways, as well as obviously the pan-global way as well. And I thought that's very interesting. Is the EU budgetary crisis with Poland and Hungary a bigger issue and a bigger crisis than getting these Brexit talks over the line? I don't have an answer for that. I just thought I'd raise the question. Yeah, perhaps so, as you look at the price action. But just a final point that we've discussed in the past, when you've had Brexit developments positive for sterling, but weaker for the FTSE. But if you look at the, the recent chart that we've seen since November, you've had a very positive correlation between the two asset classes. Sterling has moved higher, so too has FTSE. So it does beg the question, if we do get a breakthrough, what happens whether both asset classes bounce from here or whether you do actually get a disconnect on the Brexit news? So that is where some of the uncertainty lies. But I think in the past, when we have been discussing breakthrough potential. A lot of the analysts do believe that there would be a positive correlation between the two, Jeff. Yeah, absolutely. And just to uh, pick up on Steve's point, I think not only is it the passing of that uh, EU budget that's critical, but obviously as we look at these cases uh, and we get continued reads on uh, services PMI out of the Eurozone, it is clear that there is some appetite to get the pandemic support funds released quickly as well, which we know are enmeshed in that same piece of legislation. Let's move on. Let's talk about crude. We do have what appears to be 
a compromise deal here. Crude prices are extending their gains after OPEC and its allies struck a compromise deal to raise output by 500,000 barrels a day starting from January. So, Dan Murphy, at least if there's no deal on Brexit so far, it does feel as though there is some grudging compromise on these major oil producer output levels. That's exactly right, Jeff. And you are all talking about the impact of the weak dollar. I mean, take a look at what's happening with Brent right now. We've got crude on the cusp of 50 US dollars a barrel. Of course, the weaker USD has been a key catalyst there, but crude also getting a boost this morning after OPEC reached this watered down compromised agreement to extend output curbs while also increasing output in January by 500,000 barrels. This is a significant development for the market, really reaffirming the unity among the group after a whole week of hard-fought negotiations. Interestingly, this deal also bakes in a lot of flexibility as well. Ministers coming to an agreement to meet monthly now, so that will be in January, February and March, to decide whether or not they need to increase or reduce output catering to the demands of the market. One other interesting thing we saw in the late night news conference that was held with the Saudi energy minister and the Russian deputy premier overnight was this commitment to remain flexible. Of course, they still don't know what's going to happen with lockdowns across the United Kingdom, across Europe, the trajectory of the virus in the United States, still a major unknown, and all of that really adding to concerns about what oil demand is going to look like in the first half of 2021. Here's His Royal Highness addressing the media only a few hours ago. Listen in. There are serious lockdowns. Uh, yes, they are, but they're not hindering demand as they were in the first wave. Uh, the jury is still out. And because of that, we want to be cautious. We're still hopeful that uh, a mitigation of this wave that are uh, much more focused in the U.S. and uh, and Europe will be mitigated and hopefully mitigated soon. Saudi Arabia's energy minister speaking to the media during a late night news conference that was held digitally. Now, interestingly, this agreement really caters to the demands of a number of key players within the group. If you look at the UAE and Russia, for example, they came into this meeting throughout the course of the week, really trying to encourage other producers to get on board with a commitment to pump more. They're saying prices have increased throughout the course of the year, and now's the time to be adding more barrels to the market. But then on the other side of the equation, you have producers like Saudi Arabia who would have preferred to maintain the status quo. Uh, guys, I'll leave you with uh, two thoughts. The first is a piece of research that's been done by UBS this morning on the impact of this cut. Uh, they have said that once a vaccine becomes widely available, of course, the vaccine being a great unknown here, they say that improving oil demand should allow Brent prices to rise to 60 US dollars a barrel by the end of 2021. OK, look, it's a bullish call, but not too far from where we're at today. And the other thing I'd like to mention before I toss it back over to you is this. At the end of that news conference, we saw Saudi Arabia's energy minister actually inviting the Russian deputy premier to Saudi Arabia in January for an in-person meeting. His Royal Highness Prince Abdulaziz saying he's going to host a barbecue for Alexander Novak. They're going to perhaps put on some beef. They're going to uh, have some camel's milk here, really attempting to show to the media a display of unity here, suggesting that there is no issues between the relationship of Saudi Arabia and Russia, despite reports to the contrary. So I'll leave you with that thought, guys. Back over to you.
All right, Dan. Terrific. Thanks very much. Uh, and for a moment there, I thought you were going to say they're going to have a Barbie. But uh, I guess since Matt's not on the, uh, the slot this morning, probably better to leave that to one side. Uh, great coverage. Thanks so much, Dan, as always, for that. Coming up on the program, top U.S. lawmakers resume talks over a new stimulus plan with a deadline to reach a deal one week away. And for the latest on Brexit talks as they take a turn for the worse, you can check out these Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. A choppy session playing out on Wall Street yesterday. The S&P fortunes are diminished by this report from Pfizer about the rollout of a vaccine with some supply chain obstacles cited. The market's also paying close attention, as you see, a little bit of green coming through the boards around fresh stimulus talks with some hope that there may be an agreement on a package before the end of the year. Uh, quick switch over to what we saw on the Treasury markets as well. Uh, the yield, 0.91, uh, just drifting off a little bit from some of the highs that we've watched. Market also closely eyeing the Fed and whether there'll be more guidance Guidance on his asset purchase scheme later this month, Jeff. Yeah, and I guess uh, a lot's going to depend on just how bad the economy looks on the data at the moment, Karen. Big day. We're looking for the US non-farm payrolls for November today. They're expected to rise by 469,000. That's the slowest rate of growth in six months, uh, according to the Reuters forecast. Meanwhile, the unemployment rate is seen edging down to 6.8%. Paul Gambles is co-founder and managing director of MBMG Group and uh, a regular contributor Paul, good morning to you. Uh, as I look at your notes this morning, I see you've put the hard hat on and stepped into the bunker. Uh, you're basically buying gold, gold mines, long treasuries and long US dollar. Um, what are you implying then in terms of the outlook for risk assets from here? And how do you see them moving if you're that bearish? Hey, good morning, Jeff. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of those moves uh, are driven really by relative value at the moment. Um, I think the the point is that all of those assets are assets that we think look you know reasonably priced in a uh, in a quite expensive world, and we, we you know we take that theme over into to risk assets as well, in that we prefer you know long short exposure to. Uh, to pure long uh, exposure, we'd, we'd rather try and get equity alpha rather than beta. And even within equity beta, um, you know, the thing that, that worries us, I guess, m- most of all, is that, that there are some assets that are really priced for absolute perfection, uh, and they just keep getting more expensive on on things like vaccine news. So, you know, we look at the momentum stocks, which are really the ones that have driven the uh, the S&P 500, say, this year, but also, you know, all country world index as well. And, and they just look so egregiously expensive to us 
it's hard for us to see that there's a lot more upside in those and uh, the, the, there's a huge amount of downside if things aren't as absolutely perfect, as absolutely Goldilocks as the price of uh, momentum stocks implies. So really, it's, it's more about looking for, for where there's value rather than uh, making an absolute call, you know, specifically that something is going to happen in uh, in 2021. We don't know, but we, we wouldn't want to be, you know, holding assets that are priced for perfection in such an uncertain environment. Paul, as you know, the consensus seems to be pooling around the idea that there is some kind of post-lockdown burst of demand activity that ultimately uh, improves the earnings profile of a lot of corporates. But gives the markets uh, another window for gains through at least the first and the second quarter of next year. Um, Why do you not buy into that thesis? Because if you don't trade that, then perhaps you're leaving money on the table. Sure. I'm not saying we don't buy into that thesis, but I think, you know, when you look at that thesis, you break it down, you have to look at who the potential beneficiaries are of that. And for us, um, you know, it's it's the kind of stocks that you would associate with high dividend, low volatility, which is one of the most underperforming factors this year. So, you know, it would be uh, utilities. It would be real estate because we assume that a reopening would, you know, would, would create increased utilization of utilities, of real estate. It would be consumer staples. But, you know, what we're saying is really avoid the uh, the scarily price stuff, avoid IT, um, uh, avoid uh, consumer discretionary because, you know, the circumstances, there's such a narrow operating window in which those stocks can continue to go up from where they are now. A lot of them have benefited from the fact that, you know, there's been uh, shifts into digital and into e-commerce, into online during um, during COVID. Well, you know, if COVID continues, if lockdowns continue, we don't see that trend continuing. And if it doesn't, well, we don't see how they're going to, you know, relatively outperform um, all the other, you know, more boring stocks that have been left behind. You know, you've, you have to look at the fact that out of the S&P this year, um, the uh, the momentum stocks are up sort of 28%. But things like um, high high dividend, low volatility are actually down year to date. So we're just saying, you know, try to avoid the stuff that seems egregiously overpriced, whether that's uh, whether that's momentum stocks, whether it's stocks relative to treasuries. You know, try to avoid the expensive stuff. There is still some cheap stuff out there. Uh, Paul, you also point out that the market is misreading the signs around inflation. We had a conversation yesterday that I just couldn't get my head around that we're going to see a sudden spike in factory gate prices. And that was translating in commodities, which was going to drive up yields. And I just couldn't understand how that would happen. But <laughs> just talk us through what you see, because you're calling disinflation rather than inflation or even deflation at this point. Yeah, look, I, I think people have, you know, got a little bit disoriented by everything that's happened in 2020, and you know, no wonder. Um, but I, I think that you have to remember we came into 2020 in a in a disinflationary environment. We we had a global economy that was slowing. Uh, there was a lot of talk as to whether you know stimulus was going to be strong enough, uh, whether there was going to be enough fiscal stimulus to keep the economy going in 2020 at any kind of reasonable growth rate, even before COVID appeared on anybody's lips. So you know, we take COVID away. 
those structural problems are still there. That, that structural environment that's disinflationary, that's a headwind to growth, you know, that's very, very much still there. And, um, I, you know, the market keeps making the same mistakes over and over again. It keeps assuming that stimulus is going to be inflationary. Well, you know, that wasn't the case in 2009. It wasn't the case in 2012. It wasn't the case in 2015. And I don't think it's going to be the case in 2021 for all the reasons you say. You know, there's there's, there's massive capacity. So even if we get some temporary unleashing of pent up uh, demand, uh, that doesn't equate to any kind of sustainable um, you know, inflation dynamic. There may be inflation volatility, but ultimately, you know, the, the, the structure is that the, tra- the trends are downwards. Paul, let me just go back a stage. Morning to you, my friend. And I hope you'll take this question in the right way it's meant. You said, if we're right, our overweight on the assets that we favour will stand us in exceptionally good stead. If we're wrong, the clients should still make positive returns. That's what we do. These are your words. Paul, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but if you buy something and it goes up, yes, you make money. But if it goes down and you're wrong, it doesn't make money, mate. So what we're saying is that there's there's actually an opportunity, there's a diversification opportunity because of asset pricing right now that um, we can enter 2021 pretty confident that uh, we can we can position for just about you know any environment because of the fact that defensive assets, hedge assets, are so cheap. Now they may well lose money. But we're not talking about constructing a portfolio 100% of hedge assets. We're talking maybe 30% is all you need to hold in those in those hedging assets at the prices that are so cheap. Because if anything goes wrong, the upside in those is now um, exponential because of the fact they are so cheap. And you know what? If we're wrong, it means we're holding 30% of the portfolio in assets that aren't making money and the majority of the portfolio in, in assets that are. It's a real opportunity for people to, to position themselves now um, with a hedge against you know what might or might not happen in 2021. There's a, it's, it, it should be a good year to actually go and make returns. Look, anybody who gets the calls right for 2021 is going to have a spectacular year. We're not. We're not aiming to have a spectacular 2021. We're actually just you know, aiming to make a reasonable return in 2021. And the setup that there is now with asset pricing and with the, the relationships, with the short-term correlations between assets means it's actually a really, really positive outlook for trying to trying to make money, not trying to shoot the lights out. Some people will do that, in, as we said in the paper. Some people make those calls and they get those calls right. That's not what we're about. We're about, you know, trying to find ways to make money in all environments. And that's a lot, lot easier now with, uh, with these hedge assets being as cheap as they are. Paul, um, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, Obviously, your clients are going to be happy, but I don't know how it works as a marketing slogan. You may have to finesse it slightly. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.